I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Lord, you have uh, been good to us. You have been faithful. You have been kind. Uh, Lord, you have made us in your image. You have made it possible that we can be glad, uh, that we can find our joy in you, in your son, Jesus Christ, joy that comes from your spirit that lives within those that trust in you. Lord, you have done a work in this world. You've done a work in our lives. Uh, you are seeking to do a work in everybody's life that is here this morning, everybody that is listening to this message. Even right now, Lord, you are preparing to do a work. And we pray that you would do that, that you would fill us with gladness and joy. Where there is sorrow, we pray that you would provide comfort. Where there is a desire for mercy, we pray that you would provide forgiveness confidence in you where there is grief we pray that you would provide healing power and we ask all this in the name of Jesus your precious son amen well good morning crosswinds it is so good to see you all Karen and I are just uh, so glad to be here today worshiping with you and uh, I just want to give you a quick recap of, of our lives uh, in uh, summer of 21 so about 16 months ago we relocated to uh, Indianapolis area uh, some of you are familiar with maybe some of the home improvement shows like Hometown or Fixer Upper. You know how they de name houses that they go and show them? We actually got to a point where we started naming the houses. And we dubbed this house not far from home because it was not far, literally, from the area of, of town that we grew up in, about 30 minutes away from, from family. Uh, we actually moved from Buttercup Court to Red Bud Court. Uh, and we moved from Plainfield, Illinois to, get this, Plainfield, Indiana. Uh, and the downtown of Plainfield, Indiana looks an awful lot like Plainfield, Illinois, so uh, some things just don't happen to change all that much. Um, we uh, were in Indianapolis. Uh, Jeremiah, our youngest, who's here with us this morning, and Josh, our oldest, they're both now in Chicago. Uh, Sam, uh, our middle son, he is still here in Plainfield, so if you bump into him in town, say hi to Sam for us. Uh, our daughter Hannah is in Boston. Uh, for myself, in uh, the end of June, I semi-retired from Argonne. I'm still working uh, from home and doing a lot of house projects now. Karen is working at a residential care facility, and uh, she loves uh, the residents there and the staff there, and uh, she uh, has great opportunities to show love and care for them. Uh, we joined earlier this year a church called Parkside Bible Church uh, just north of us. It's a, a great church where the gospel is preached every Sunday in a clear and compelling way. Uh, we are making plans, finalizing plans to launch a uh, small group uh, at the, after the start of the year. And uh, I am going to be going to Costa Rica at the end of January on a mission trip. We have missionary that we partner with on the ground, and so we're going to be working with him. There's going to be a team of about nine of us that will be going down there to, uh, to work with them. But I'm here today because about four months ago, Pastor Ken, he asked me if I could preach uh, some Sunday while he is gone in Sierra Leone. And... Uh, by the way, he is, and I've told him this, and you can tell him I said this here. Uh, he may be listening online. You tell him if you believe this. He is doing a fantastic job as your pastor, as your shepherd, as your friend here uh, at Crosswinds. And uh, so just, just tell him that. He's doing a fantastic job. But I am excited to preach here this morning. And, and what I want to tell you is this. You were made for more. You were made for more. And I'm going to be preaching from Psalm 122. So if you brought a Bible, and I hope you did, uh, open that Bible to Psalm 122. There's Bibles in the back on the shelf. Uh, if you don't have one, feel free to grab one of those. And it's really easy to find because it is like my Bible at home. 
it's like right smack dab in the middle uh, of all the pages of the Bible. So it's pretty simple to find. Um, so what does it mean to be made for more? Well, I want to spend about 40 seconds talking about what it, me what it does not mean. And then I'll be spending about 40 minutes telling you what it does mean. And by the way, do you know what it means when a preacher tells you how long he's going to be preaching? Absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. So what does it not mean? Well, first of all, I think this is important because with all of the uh, Black Friday and Cyber Monday and, you know, buy everything you can Wednesday uh, type of sales, I mean, it's like a whole season now, right? You've seen this. I sell commercials starting the, the first of November for all the things that you could buy. Well, being made for more does not mean, you probably already know this, doesn't mean you were made for more, just stuff, right? Not more things, not more possessions, not more money, not more power, not more prestige, not more authority. You weren't made for that. You know, it, it's not like in, in my stage of life where you weren't made to retire and have more fun and more free time. Now, God is sovereign and in his providence, he may decide to give you some of those things, but it doesn't mean that you were made primarily for those things. So what does being made for more mean? Well, I want to give you some background on Psalm 122 to kind of set this up. You may already know this, but Psalm 122 is part of a collection of 15 psalms from Psalm 120 to 134 that are called the Psalms of Ascent. Songs of Ascent, sometimes called that. And that word ascent, it, it, it has kind of a twofold meaning. The first is literally, as you would go to Jerusalem to worship, you would literally go up into a mountainous region that was surrounding the city of Jerusalem. And so you would go up into the mountains. I'm told that in a car or a bus ride going up there from Jericho, your ears actually pop from the change in elevation because you're going, you're climbing up. Uh, but the second reason for this is that it is an image of ascending in worship to God. You're preparing your heart and you're ascending to, to meet him. And so the, the people of Israel, they wrote these 15 psalms, and they would literally read them. They would recite them from memory. They would sing them as, as groups of families or as traveling groups as they made the trip up to Jerusalem to pre prepare their hearts and their minds for worship. And what we're going to learn from this song of ascent today, Psalm 122, is this, is that we were made for worship. We were made for worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God, lit by more passion for the glories of God than anything else in all the world. And I'm going to be saying that over and over and over. And I'm going to share with you six things that come from this psalm about what that means to have a worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world. So what I would like to do is I'm going to read Psalm 122 to you. And out of reverence for God's word, I'd like to invite you to stand if you're able Please stand as, as I read through this. If you're not able, that's fine. And let's read through Psalm 122. Let us go. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Their thrones for judgment were set, the thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. You may be seated. So, six things of what this psalm is saying to us about what it means to have a worship 
that is lit with more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world. And the first is this, is that that kind of worship is driven by powerful emotions, powerful emotions. And this is reflected in the first verse. He says, I was glad when they said to me to let us go to the house of the Lord. The psalmist, David, is the one who, he's the one who wrote this psalm. He was motivated by, to worship by a powerful sense of gladness because he had more passion for the glories of God. He was a man after God's own heart, more passion for the glories of God than anything else in all the world. And this represents, this verse actually represents a very important transformation in my life because when I was little, when my parents would say, it's time, let's go to church. Well, let's just say sometimes our emotion and as we're going to worship is, is not glad, but maybe sad or, or mad or we just feel bad, right? And, you know, it's one thing to feel that way when you're a little kid. It's like the mom who was, she woke her son up from uh, on Sunday morning to go to church. She said, it's time to go to church. And he kicked his feet and I'm not going to go, he defiantly said. And she said, well, why not, young man? And he said, I'll give you two reasons why I'm not going to go. One is that they don't like me. And number two is I don't like them. And she said, well, I'll give you two reasons, mister, why you should go. One is you're 54 years old, and the second is you're the pastor. <laughs> you know, sometimes it requires a little bit of special level of motivation uh, to join in worship. And, and this is really important. The psalmist tells us on this occasion that he felt glad about going to worship. But what about when you don't feel glad? What about when you feel sad, or you feel mad, or you feel bad? What do you do then? Do you just suck it up and go and smile anyway? Or do you just not go? What, what is it? And when I'm in the former situation, you know, sometimes we, you may feel mad about going to worship. And then there's days that you feel mad as you're going to worship, or you feel bad as you're going to worship, what do you do? Well, if I'm in the former situation, I feel mad about going, I need to repent. But if I feel sad or bad as I'm going to worship, I want to share with you some things that have been helpful to me and, and I hope is, is helpful to you. Because the Psalms, especially, you know, they're not all written where it's, rah, 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 let's go to church, let's celebrate. I mean, sometimes it's like that, but there's a lot of psalms that are not like, not like that at all. And the beautiful thing about the psalms and really the whole scripture is they, they have people that are in the whole range of emotions, from glad to sad, to bad to mad. My, my pillow is drenched with tears. You ever had that? Your pillow ever been drenched with tears? Let's worship. I feel really sad and in distress, Lord. I must worship. If you are in that kind of situation, I want to tell you that you are in the company of some of the greatest worshipers that there have ever been. Those are powerful emotions too. In fact, maybe more powerful than gladness. Sorrow is a very powerful emotion. And therefore, I must worship God. I would, I would 
commend you to look at some of the other Psalms, Psalm 120, Psalm 124, Psalm 128, 129, 130. They all are the psalmist that is in a, a situation of distress. And they call it out and say, I'm in distress. I must go worship the Lord. Gladness can drive you to worship, but so can your need for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared and worshipped. Gladness can motivate worship, but so can sorrow. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You don't need everything going your way in order to worship. In fact, all you need, all you need is God. To paraphrase an old writer, the man or the woman who only has God and has nothing else has infinitely more than the person who has everything else. There is a little girl in a slum in Bangladesh, a city of Bangladesh right now, who has Jesus, and she has infinitely more than Elon Musk or any rich person that you may be able to think of. Infinitely more because she has God in her life. That's what it takes for us to worship. So that's number one, driven by powerful emotions. No matter what else you might not have, if you have God, if you have Jesus, you have what it takes to worship. Secondly, we were made for worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world. It means that my worship is persistent. Look at verse two. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. The Hebrew word for standing it means this, it means to remain, to endure, to stand still, to take one's stand, to hold one's ground. Hold your ground. You know, something's coming at you, I'm going to hold my ground. I think Paul writes in Ephesians 6 that after you've done everything to stand, to stand firm. This means that it isn't a one-time experience, our worship. It's not hit or miss. Worship has more passion for the glories of God and the things of this world happens over and over and over again. You could say that you and I were made to worship more and more, more and more. I gathered with brothers and sisters last Sunday to worship. I'm gathered with brothers and sisters today to worship. I'm going to do that again. I've had family members that have said to me, maybe you have too, what, wait, you're not available this weekend either? Why so often? Why is it? Because when you understand what worship is, when you understand who God is, worship, it's like breathing. And when you understand what it is, you can't get enough. I don't know anybody that says, I know everything there is to know about oxygen. And frankly, it's overrated. Does anybody say that? When you can't breathe, you can't get enough. You want more and more. When your worship is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world, your worship is like breathing. It's persistent over and over. Now, verse 3 and 4. Here's another one. Jerusalem built as a city which is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. Decreed for what? What's it say? To give thanks to the name of the Lord. To worship. They were commanded to go and worship. So here's another thing. Worship 
that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world is an obedience that is pleasing to God. You right here, right now, you're obeying. That's good news, right? I mean, I'm glad to know that I'm doing things that are obedient. And we're obeying, and when we obey, it is pleasing to God. The commands to worship include many different things. It's giving thanks, and it's uh, extolling his character. It's exulting in his power. It's confessing and repenting of sin. I mean, all those things are commanded for us to do. And when we do those things, it is pleasing to God as an act of obedience. We're obeying his commands. Now, the main focus of Psalm 122 is the command of God that the people would worship in a place where he would put his name. Deuteronomy 12, verse 5, God said this, You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all the tribes to put his name and to make his habitation there. There you shall go. I'm going to designate a place, God says to Moses, and he tells it to pass on to the people that you're going to get there, and I'm going to designate a place, and that's the place that you're supposed to go to worship me. And so when verse 4 says, the tribes go up to Jerusalem as decreed for the Lord. It's, this is referring to that command that God had that the people of Israel, two or three times a year, that they would make this trip, this pilgrimage, from wherever they lived to the place that God had designated for them to worship. God had chosen Jerusalem. Now, they worshiped weekly. They would worship close to their homes in a synagogue every sa- Sabbath on a Saturday. They would gather and they would worship. But then there was these two or three times a year that they would go up and they would make the pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. And as a result of this, Jerusalem, we know this, has become a very important place in the world. It is, it is the epicenter almost of three major world religions, for Judaism, for Islam, and for Christianity. All of them kind of say Jerusalem is a very special place. Some, because of, just because of its history, that's how Christians identify Jerusalem as important because of its history and because of so much of the events of the gospel unfolded and happened right there in that area. I've never been. I would love to go. But it is a place where you you get to visualize and see all those places where Jesus walked and, and the disciples preached and all these things that happened. Now, for Christians... Our worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world, it's not about a place, right? It's about a person. It's about the person of Jesus Christ. And we see this unfolding in the Gospels, not in the Gospels, but in in the book of Acts. You see this unfolding and some changes that were made very quickly. So these first worshipers of Jesus, who were largely Jewish, very quickly, they changed their day of worship, their primary day of corporate worship from the Jewish Sabbath on a Saturday to the first day of the week on Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. It was a phenomenal shift that happened. And not only that, but it also affected the place where they would, that they would meet. Because they they would gather in different places in groups of twos or threes or mores. Acts 5.42 says this about the first worshipers of Jesus. And every day in the temple courts and from house to house, They did not cease teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. So they had large group gatherings in the temple, but then they would have small group gatherings in homes. Acts 16.13 tells us that people gathered for worship by a river. Where Pastor Ken is worshiping today, where he has already worshiped, there are several hours ahead of us, 
looked probably very much different than the place where we're sitting today. Christians gather for worship in homes and in huts and in buildings and in backyards. And one of the things that COVID taught us is that we can worship online, right? People gather, people are still gathering online. We, we recognize that we can do that. Our primary purpose as Christians, we take to heart, is this, that we gather and worship and preach about Jesus. With the coming of Jesus as the Son of God, his death, his burial, his resurrection, faith in the gospel, rebirthed by the Holy Spirit, our worship is transformed into the kind of worship. And Jesus said this, my Father is seeking worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. And so through that transformation that has happened in our life, we are now the kind of worshipers that Jesus said his Father is seeking, where you will no longer worship on this mountain or on that mountain, but you will gather in twos and threes and mores, and you will give praise to my name. And you will talk about Jesus and you'll preach about Jesus so that people will come to know him, put their faith and trust in him. We worship as forgiven sinners in a relationship with God as our Father, Jesus as our Savior, empowered by the Holy Spirit. New hearts, new minds that are transformed by the gospel because our worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world is about a person, not about a place. Now look with me at verse 6, the end of the psalm. He says this, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say, Peace be within you. For the sake of the house of the Lord our God, I will seek your good. What's the key idea of verses 6 to 9, 6 to the end of the psalm? What is the key idea that is here? Shout it out. What is it? Peace. Peace. Security. Five appeals in four verses are for peace and for security. If you look up surveys, what, what is it that people want most out of life? Peace and security end up in the top ten almost always. may not be number one, but it is always there. And sadly, for many people in the world... It is elusive. It is not there for them. They don't have it present in their life. They're, they're like the psalmist in Psalm 120. This is one of those psalms that comes out of a, a feeling of distress. And the psalmist said this, Too long have I had my dwelling among those who hate peace. I am for peace, but when I speak, they are for war. You know people like that? It's distressing. When you are wanting peace, you want peace in your workplace, you want peace in your family, you are trying to speak for peace, you are appealing for peace, and they are for war, they're for battle, they're for divisive words. It's distressing. The psalmist is saying, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And what this is telling us is that worship is, that is lit by more passion for the things of God, the glories of God, than the things of this world, is seeking what only God can provide. Only God can provide the type of peace that the psalmist is looking for. When he says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, he's saying, pray and ask for something to come from up above to down here. You see, we can manufacture peace. You can, through diplomacy, compromise, you can wave the white flag of surrender, and you can have peace, you can have a ceasefire, but there are no permanent ceasefires. There will be wars and rumors of wars to the very end, Jesus said. 
There's no permanent ceasefires. Since these are some of the things that only God can do, worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world is seeking what only God can do. Don't come into church seeking for something that anybody can do that the world can provide you. Seek what only God can give you. Only God, only God can shine light out of darkness. The Bible says so. Only God can cause all things to work together for good. Only God can do that. Only God can raise the dead. Only God can forgive sins. Only God can save sinners. In the same way in praying for peace, it's a prayer for something that has to flow down from heaven to earth. It's a prayer for peace that comes from above, not from below. Prayer for peace from God that only God can give and which the world and the devil cannot take away. I want to see a fulfillment of this prayer for what only God can give in Luke 19. If you have your Bible, flip over to Luke 19 and go down to verse 41. Let me set this up. So Jesus has ridden into the city of Jerusalem. It's the week before Passover. This is one of those pilgrimages that they would make on an, an annual basis, two or three times a year. They would go up to Jerusalem, and Jesus has gone to Jerusalem just with his disciples and with thousands and thousands of other uh, pilgrims. They've been singing the songs of ascent. Jesus has been singing Psalm 122, along with his disciples, along with everybody else, he's hearing them sing this song that says, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls and security within your towers. For the sake of my companions and my brothers, I will say, peace be within you. Jesus has spoken these words and he's heard these words. And Luke 19, 41 says this. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. He's weeping because he knows very soon that the crowds are going to be clamoring, crying, screaming out for his crucifixion on a cross. And that within a generation, the temple is going to be torn down brick by brick by Roman soldiers that moment, there's a grassroots movement led by a man by the name of Barabbas. You've probably heard of him. Barabbas is leading a movement that is curiously, literally willing to kill in order to have peace within their city. I'm not saying that there isn't a time to fight for what's right, but this wasn't one of them. And then the, the leaders who were especially responsible for the temple they were playing it safe. And they were working hard to keep the peace by doing whatever made Rome happy. I'm not saying that there isn't a place for compromise and, and being cooperative and being agreeable, but as one commentator said this, he said, in playing for safety, Jerusalem achieved disaster. Playing for safety will oftentimes bring you complete disaster. Both sides had missed what would make for peace. You see, the fulfillment of this prayer, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, is Jesus, right? He's the one, when he's born, what do the angels say? Peace on 
earth, right? The one who will bring peace between men and God has come. So through him, we can have peace with God in this grace in which we stand. Remain. Hold your ground. Romans 5.1. I hold my ground in that grace that comes, that has brought peace to my heart, brought me forgiveness of my sins. No more worry and fear of guilt of how God might say, away from me. Because I know him. And more importantly, he knows me. That's a peace that only God can give. And through Jesus, it's through him that we receive peace when we face the storms in life. See, Jesus was at peace, but it wasn't because he never faced a storm, did he? He faced storms, right? He slept through a storm. How does, how does he have peace as he faces these storms in life? Or as he, as he is on his way to his death on the cross for our sins. How does, how does he have that peace? Because he knew that the safest and most peaceful place to be, is, it's not dictated by your circumstances. Are you, in the, are you in God's will? The safest and most peaceful place for you to be is in the center of God's will. Arguing and fighting will not bring you peace. Playing it safe will not bring you peace. Being in the center of God's will, that will bring you peace that only God can give. And God's will, his, his purpose is for you to become like his son. Romans 8, 29 says that from the very beginning, God decided that those who come to him, and all along he knew, he who, he knew who would, should become like his son. So all the way back to when God said, let us make man in our image, his intention was for you to be like his son. That's why most of the time when Jesus talked to people about his mission, he said to them, follow me, be my disciple, learn from me and become like me. Because the more and more that you become like Jesus, the more you, you fulfill that purpose in your life, God, the Holy Spirit is working you, you become more like Christ, the more peace that you will have. Worship that is lit more by the passion for the glories of God than the things of this world is primary. One of the things I was prone to say when I was pastor here was this. What happens in a place like Crosswinds on Sunday morning when there's 40 people? Maybe on a Saturday night, maybe some other time. What happens in a place like this on a Sunday morning is more powerful more impactful, means more, means more for history, means more for what is happening in this world around us than what happens all week long in any government building or corporate boardroom or college lecture hall. This is the most important thing that happens. Jesus said that a gathering of just two has more power to shake the heavens loose than the mightiest halls of power. So when we gather Week after week, this is primer because we are calling on God to do what? To do what only God can do. We're seeking him to do that. And if worship is primary, it means that you don't limit your worship to just when you're gathered with others one day a week. It inhabits your entire life, every minute of the day, with others or when you're alone and no one but God is watching. And you might say, well, that's good for you, but I'm just not wired that way. And I would say, no, God did make you that way. 
You see, God doesn't command us to do things that he didn't make us able to do. He commands us to worship because he made us able to worship. You were made in his image. God gives glory to himself, and he made us so that we might be able to give him glory as well. God commands you to worship because he wired you for worship and 10,000 other things that you can do. From the first man and woman in the Garden of Eden all the way to the end of history, every human being that will ever have been born will have been made in the image of God capable of worshiping. Remember, God commanded wherever he puts his name is a place for him to be worshiped. And friends, the Bible says in Romans 22.4, he has written his name on his people. His name is written on you. His name is written on you. His name is written on you, and if, it, if he commands for him to be worshiped, wherever he places his name and he's placed his name on you, he's to be worshiped there. He's to be worshiped there. He's worshiped there. Our word worship comes from an old English word that just means worship. Worship is just declaring what is worthy. And, and frankly, we do this all the time. You, you, all throughout your day, this is worthy, this is worthless. I like this, I don't like that. This gives my life meaning. We're doing that all the time, constantly. We don't turn worship off and on. Even when you sin, you've not turned worship off. You just change directions. You turn worship upside down, so you're no longer worshiping the creator, but created things. So everybody worships. We worship what we believe to be worth it. So whatever gets your passion, gets your worship. Over and over today, I've been saying that we were made for worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world. And our word worship, I said, comes from an old English word. The word lit as as old and new meanings. Old meaning is it's when you set fire to something and it, it provides warmth or light. I lit a candle so that I could see when the power went out. I, I lit a fire so that I could be warm. That's a, the, an older meaning of the word, but it's, it's now a slang term. Maybe your teenagers have used it in text. Maybe you have. I don't know. I never have. But it means something that is exciting or intoxicating. Not intoxicated, I'm not talking about being intoxicated. Although Paul did say, don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. Maybe we should be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. I think that's what, what he's saying. Maybe a text like this. That concert was lit. Are you at Isabella's quinceanera? Yes, it's lit. Did you see the U.S. play Iran on Tuesday? That game was lit. Netherlands, not so much. Brothers and sisters, is your worship lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world? Does it shine light? Does it bring warmth? Is it exciting? Is it almost intoxicating? Because whatever gets your passion, your love, your life, that's what you worship. That's why God is so focused. He's absolutely so focused on our passions. It's why the psalmist said, I was glad when they said, let us go to the house of the Lord. It's why God desires our worship to be lit 
with more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world. So how can this be true for you and me? What are some practical ways to make our hearts glad when we worship? Let me just share with you a few insights, and, and I'm going to be done. Number one, remember what you're thankful for. It was decreed for Israel to go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. What is it that you're, I mean, oftentimes it's like in churches and in small groups, that, what are you thankful for? And we're like, well, I'm not really sure. It, some people have found it helpful to keep a, a gratitude list, to write down what are those things that they are thankful for so that you can give thanks to God for those things. It helps you to keep the main thing the main thing. Some people have to unplug from the noise, social media, technology, maybe for a day, maybe for a week, a season, maybe for good. And they would say it was literally for my good that I, I unplugged myself from those things because that was all distracting me from worship. I was more focused on the things of this world than on the glories of God. One tip I found was I thought exceedingly practical. It, 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 said this, rest on Saturday night and eat a good breakfast on Sunday morning. Because your physical body plays a role in your, your capacity to worship, to have worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world. So my commend, I commend to you that on Saturday night, plan ahead for worship on Sunday morning. Get rest. Eat a good breakfast. I had, I had waffles this morning. That was fantastic. I love to get waffles. So I'm fired up. As the Snickers commercial says, what? You're not you when you're hungry. When you're tired and hungry, it's hard to worship. Finally, find a place for truth. I would commend that no matter what your emotional state is or circumstances, when you come into worship, just come seeking truth. Several years ago, I was preparing a sermon, and I came across this quote from Jonathan Edwards, and I wrote it on the inside cover of my Bible. It became something I thought, this is, this is important. He said this, I should think myself in the way of my duty to raise the affections, the, the emotions of my hearers as high as possibly I can, provided they are affected by nothing but the truth. My duty, he said, to his hearers, and I think to himself as well, and I take that for myself as well, is to raise the affections of the hearers. And sometimes you've got to preach the gospel to yourself as high as I possibly can, provided that it is only affected by the truth. So throughout the week, I seek to raise my affections toward God by looking for how events in real life intersect with the truths of the scripture. And what excites me as I think about coming to worship on Sunday morning, gathering with God's people as I look forward to what truth am I going to hear in the songs that we sing or in the prayers that are prayed or in the sermon that is preached. See, joy comes from knowing God. Exaltation comes from education about who he is. Thinking correctly about God leads to feeling correctly about him. When you discover the truth of who God is, you can't help but worship him. Remember, we were made for worship. You were made for worship that is lit by more passion for the glories of God than the things of this world. So 
Here are some things. This worship is driven by powerful emotions, whether exceeding gladness or deep sorrow. It's persistent like breathing. You can't get enough. It's obedience that pleases God. It's about a person, Jesus Christ, and not a place. It seeks what only God can provide. It's primary because whatever gets your passion is what gets your worship. I was reminded uh, as I prepared this sermon and was finishing up, small church where I first met Jesus 35 years ago. Pastor would finish every every service, and he would say this, if you're glad that you came to the house of the Lord today, say amen. If you are glad that you came to the house of the Lord, say amen. Amen. We're going to have a time to respond, and Neil and the praise team is going to lead us in singing. And this is an opportunity. You can, you can pray where you are, seeking, seek only those things that God can provide. You can pray where you are. You can sing along with the praise team, worship God. Uh, I'll be here on this side. Todd, Deacon Todd will be over here. If you want to come and pray with us, and we will seek what only God can provide together. That's what, that's what we're about. We're going to seek what only God can provide. We're going to pray, and we're going to trust he's the one that can provide. Let me pray, and then we're going to respond. Why don't you stand? Father, we thank you that you have brought us to this place today. And we thank you for the truth that you have written down for us in Scripture. We thank you, Lord, that you have provided us with knowledge of you, understanding of who you are. You, Jesus Christ, you said that knowing you is eternal life. We thank you for giving us that knowledge. We thank you for giving us knowledge of your salvation. We thank you for giving us knowledge of your power. And Lord, we seek today those things that only you can provide. Where there are dead and dying marriages, Lord, we pray that you would raise those things to new life because if you could raise the dead, you can raise those things. Where there is failing health, Lord, we pray that you would bring about a, a, a resurrection and healing in that life. Lord, where there is a desire and a need for mercy, Lord, we pray that you would provide it because with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are to be feared and worshipped. Father, we come to you this morning seeking for you to shine light where there is darkness. We ask for you to bring good where there is circumstances that are certainly outside of our control, but not outside of your control. So we ask that you would bring good to those situations. Father, we pray that you would just work in our lives this morning and throughout the rest of this week as we offer up to you a, a passionate worship that is lit by more passion for your glories than for the things of this world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.